0: One of the biggest differences between, you know, being a SEAL Team 7, when I was a SEAL Team 7 CO, you know, I may not, you know, give orders to run the team on a day-to-day basis. That's the number two guy, the executive officer's job and the operations officer. But I had my hands, you know, on the controls. And, uh, but then later when I go to group one and it's, um, you know, one, teams one, three, five, and seven are, um, you know, working for me. Each of those commanding officers, that's his, or that's his team. And I can only, I can give a direct order, but, but he is going to execute it the way he sees fit. And that's a whole different kind of leadership and understanding those guys and how they functioned and asking myself, you know, what is, you know, what does SEAL Team 3 need? Vice, what does the, CO, the commanding officer think it needs? That kind of question over and over again.
1: Hey friends, welcome to this week's episode of The Human Podcast. This is Jeff Wu. The best part about working on the podcast and the human business broadly is meeting and working with incredibly intelligent and inspiring people across the domains of elite sport, scientific research, human performance, and business. One of my favorite people I've gotten to know is Alexander Krongard. He's a retired Navy SEAL Rear Admiral, and this is is his podcast debut we dive into his extensive history in the military which includes founding seal team seven and serving in president barack obama's national security council staff we discuss senior level experience and leadership the mindset and mental resiliency of those in service and the strategy and approaches to tackle the psychological burden of combat and deployment if you have any questions or thoughts that pop up as you listen Send them our way by emailing podcast at hvmn.com, podcast at human.com. When we have Admiral Krongaard back in the future, we'll answer your questions on air. Without further ado, let's get started. Alex, really excited to have you on the program.
0: I'm excited to be here, Jeff, and your new digs. Yeah,
1: so we are breaking in the new human podcast studio, and you're the first one to break it in. So I couldn't think of a better guest. So... I know that we've had so many different conversations touching upon philosophy, business, a a life approach, but perhaps to frame up the conversation here, a lot of your, I I think your mindset really comes from your background as a Navy SEAL and a Navy SEAL Admiral. Perhaps we best start from, you know, your background, how you came up, how you grew up, the,
0: the surrounding there and how the Navy experience began. Okay, I won't go all the way back to the beginning, but so I was getting to the end of college and uh, challenging, shall we say, a college experience after four years of intense boarding school. And I was looking at going to law school, and the last thing I wanted to do on the planet was three more years of school. And I was looking at options, and one of the options was the military. And I did some stuff with the Marine Corps first, and then I found out about the SEAL teams And I talked to a bunch of SEALs and I thought, this sounds good. And I think I can get through training. And I signed up for the SEAL teams. And I think the day I got accepted, which was, say, February of my senior year, I went home. And that night I lay awake thinking, you know, what did I do to myself? So you got accepted for the SEAL teams before you graduated college. Back then you had to get accepted by the SEALs and then the Navy would accept you. And if you did not have a spot in SEAL training, you could not get a a commission in the United States Navy. And it was just an odd way they did business back then. And actually, I think they may still do it that way for certain people. For officer candidates. For officer candidates. And so and it all comes down to manpower management, really. So I, I graduated in June. I waited a couple of months, went through Navy officer candidate school. And in January of 1986, I started SEAL training. And buds, the intimate you know, butt, yeah, Basic underwater demolition seal training yeah. buds. And it was probably the greatest experience of my life. I mean, I say I had a good time. <laughs> I mean, good time is relative, you know, but it was fun. It was incredibly challenging. But the best part about it was at the end of the day, the day was over. You maybe polished your boots, got your uniform ready for the next day, maybe some other equipment, and then you went to sleep. And you may not get a lot of sleep, but you know, you woke up in the morning and you faced a new day with new challenges. But every day ended, and that was something different than college had been. And I was an English major, and I was supposed to read like three thousand pages a week, and there's no way I was going to do that. And so it was just a better lifestyle. <laughs> and I expected to stay three or four years, and you know, as I tell people, I woke up one day and I'd been in 31 years. And my motivation for staying changed over the years. My first uh, five to ten years, it was just flat out fun. You know, we were jumping out of airplanes diving shooting blowing things up traveling all over the world it was really really interesting and i liked the people i was with and like i said it was fun and and it was also physically and mentally challenging yeah. And then over time, you start to, I'll I'll call it, professionalize. You become part of the profession of arms. You learn how to do things, and you learn what your strengths are within the institution and within whatever organization you're serving. And so by the time I had been in... You know, 15 years, I had worked with not the same group of people that whole time, but with a lot of the same group. And I felt obligations to them, and I wanted to do a good job for them. And uh, I think around the 17-year point, I was selected to uh, start a new SEAL team, SEAL Team 7, and went out to Coronado, California, right after 9-11. I think I got there the last couple of days of October in 2001. And there were eight of us, and we're supposed to start this SEAL team. And everything was overseas supporting what was going on in Afghanistan. And then later on, by 2003, it was overseas supporting Iraq. And somehow, we slowly built the team from the ground up and had a lot of discussions of what we wanted the team to be like and that kind of thing. But while we were having our discussions, the world around us was changing a lot. The Iraq war was kicking off. You know, we were now fighting two wars, plus other, there was other stuff going on in the Pacific and down in Africa, and we weren't sure where we were going to end up. I think we went to overseas in uh, September of 2003, and we came back in April of 2004, and in that time period, we consolidated SEAL Team 7 in Iraq for a period of, I don't know, four or five months, and it was just fascinating carrying out operations each and every night that we had been training forever to do. And, you know, it wasn't quite as exciting for me. I was the guy who, uh, as I put it, you know, their day ended when the sun came up and my day started, you know, taking advantage of whatever they had accomplished the night before and, you know, explaining why it was good or, you know, why it wasn't as bad as it seemed to the people I worked for. And then the sun would go down, the guys would go out again. And sometimes I would go out with them, but... At this point in my career, it was pretty obvious that, uh, you know, I had to be there sometimes just to see what was going on and make sure things were going right. But if I was there every night, I'd be in the way and it wasn't my job. And that was a really hard realization to come to that, uh, you know, my job was not what I had trained my whole career to do. It was actually something different. And it was to take care of, it was about 280 people, you know, make sure they had what they needed to do their job. And in April of 2004, you know, we all came home and, you know, it was a great feeling to step off the airplane in San Diego and realize what SEAL Team 7 had accomplished in that time period. And, you know, since then, what we did in that deployment has been eclipsed multiple times by SEAL Team 7 itself and by every other SEAL team. But, you know, back then we were just starting out and, you know, it was a great way to start.
1: Yeah, that must have been a huge honor to be selected to stand up a new team. I mean, there's, what, you know, eight, nine, ten different teams, depending on how you count them. So, being one of the few founding commanding
0: officers, that's a very selected fraternity, I would imagine. I mean, on the face of it, it seems that way, but, you know, obviously, I know the guy who started SEAL Team 10 roughly the same time we started SEAL Team 7, and... I don't know. We never thought of it that way. It was, I mean, it was an honor, but it was, uh, you know, this, I put it, you know, I'll go back on my walker to the 25th anniversary of SEAL Team Seven's founding. And, you know, I might get recognized that one time (laughs) (laughs) and that's about it. You know, they, I don't know, SEALs have short memories. And I think it's one of our greatest strengths that we don't dwell too much on the past. I think we take lessons from it, but we don't You know, We don't try to be whatever it was in the past every day. We look at what the problems are right now and we solve those problems.
1: Yeah, and that's something I think is important because I think before getting to know you over the last, what, year, year and a half, two years and interacting with folks in the SEAL community and the Special special Ops community, I think in the media, a lot of these commandos or, or super soldiers are like alpha individuals. And I think the biggest takeaway that I've seen is that and I think you probably would attest to this, it's not about the individual, it's about the team. And it seems like that's reflecting into not having like a hero worship for any specific SEAL,
0: but just about the whole mission, about the whole team of SEALs. Yeah, uh, it's all about teams. Yeah. I mean, and from the first day of BUDS, they teach you that. And with the officers, they're really hard on that. Like I can remember one time in training, some guys who were in my boat crew did something. Uh, they didn't do an uh, band order quickly enough or something. I don't, I don't remember what it was. And the first time, the punishment was that I was put in a rubber boat and they lifted me over their heads. And that was to show me that they were literally carrying me and also figuratively and that I better make the right decisions, that kind of thing. But the second time something like that happened, the guys got their little time in the barrel, so to speak, and their punishment was a little different than they carried around in a boat. But, but yeah, no, it's all the instructors going through SEAL training. And then and back in the teams itself, you know, the last thing you want is an individual. You're looking for a, a good team player. And as a matter of fact, they're, you know, some phenomenal individual athletes and uh, you know, on the outside they do great things that they're not so great in the teams cause they're not team players and yeah. a team player is a different sort of person. Yeah. And I think that's a
1: valuable lesson that crosses into just life in general. I think we're in a society where things and problems are so complex that there's very rarely this case of a lone athlete or a lone genius that solves the world's problems. I mean, the most impactful organizations are you know tens, hundreds, thousands of people working in the same joint missions. I think that's a kind of a culture that hopefully we inspire and bring to broader society. Where we have less people that are selfish and individualistic. And one point I wanted to bring up was that you described BUDS as fun. And I think very few humans <laughs> would, would describe it as such, right? You know, this is like one of the most hellish, difficult selection programs. What is the pass rate like? sub
0: 10 percent 30 percent no, roughly get through okay right? historically
1: okay but it, even to enter SEAL training you have there's a selection and then once you're even selected for buds there's like a pretty high attrition rate
0: yes but it's still fun i mean i'm not <laughs> the only person on the planet who thought it was fun but i feel like only the
1: cup seals that come out say it's <laughs> fun i think everyone else that's a normal person it's like oh like goddamn, i'm running like Miles a day. I'm not sleeping. I'm going through hell week, which is what, like five, six days of not sleeping and just doing obstacle courses and
0: boat races and running and having bombs explode around you. Yeah, I guess there are several ways I think it was fun. The first is that you hear all these stories about Hell Week. And uh, like the one I remember is- Can you this, describe Hell Week in, 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 and so in its Hell place? Hell Week roughly starts, I don't know what it's like. I'll describe it in 1986 or what I remember. And I don't think it's changed tremendously. You kind of, quote unquote, go to sleep on Sunday night and about- An hour after you go in your tent or whatever, there are all these explosions and blank machine gun fire and people yelling at you and you can't see anything. And they do all these drills just to get you disoriented and see how the people who are supposed to be in charge in that situation gain control over the situation. They get you wet and they have you roll around in the sand and all kinds of other unpleasant things. And then you start a series of events. And the events are like handed down from class to class, the stories of the narrative. And you kind of know what's coming, but you don't necessarily know the order. And you're so disoriented that uh, you know you can't remember everything anyway. But then one other thing, really important thing, is if you can make it to the, uh, so you start Sunday night, if you can make it till Tuesday morning, you're probably going to make the whole thing. I think the majority of the people quit the first night and then some the second night. Anyway, there was this thing, I don't even know if they do it anymore, called the Steel Pier, where you took off, I can't remember if you took off all your clothes or you had like a pair of triathlon shorts underneath. And you jumped in San Diego Bay. And we did this in February. So you know the water's probably in the low 50s. And you did survival floating. And the real reason you're doing survival floating is so that you get your head in the water. And you go survival foot and then they say, oh, we got to get you warm now. So you get up, you lay on the steel pier, which is cold, too. And guys come around, and they have blankets wrapped around them, and they rub the blanket. Doesn't this feel nicer? (laughs) Wouldn't you want to be in the ambulance? And, you know, to me, I'd heard the stories about it, and I was cold. You know, I'm not saying I wasn't hurting But it was also funny, you know, I could understand what was going on. And I was finally living the story instead of just hearing the story. You know, I was one step closer to joining the brotherhood of all the people who had gone through that. And so to me, that was fun. And there were tangible rewards, you know, at every step of the way. I made it through another evolution. One of the big tricks to make it through BUDS is, if you think about it as six months or 12 months of training until you get to a SEAL team, you'll never make it. But if you think of it as you know, six minutes or 60 minutes, I got to make it through this, you'll do fine. And it's actually not such a bad way to get through difficult things in life either. You know, if I can just make it through this, I'll be fine. Yeah, and, just decompartmentalize uh, the problem, right? Just one, yeah. one small portion of the time. Exactly, and there were other events like that in training. And there's some real famous Hell Week events. Steel Pier is one of them. You know, taking your boats through the obstacle course is another. They have this long like paddle around uh, Coronado Island that is another thing. And and as you went through these things and you mentally checked them off you're like "Ah, that's pretty fun (laughs) and then the other and they had you know they make fun of people and you have like fights where you throw mud at each other it's kind of childish at times but you know when you haven't any sleep for five days you'll kind of laugh at anything yeah
1: and i think when we talked about this before you mentioned that you thought yourself through buzz and it sounds like you very much took that approach where you realized that these were tricks gimmicks little stunts that they were playing on you and it sounded like you were able to rationalize and process that and power through that way where I think if you listen to some of the other folks that went through BUDS it, it might have been more of a simplistic like animalistic
0: just like I'm going to power through this Would you say yeah. that there's a, there's like a like there's just different approaches to tackling the everyone, problem everyone has a different everyone uses whatever tools they've developed over the course of their life up until BUDS to get through things after training we had a a meeting all the officers who had made it through Hell Week, you know, our class and the classes before us. And we're meeting with the uh, captain in charge of Bud's. And he had this theory that everyone who made it through Hell Week had gone through some trauma in their life. And they're going around the table and everyone had had some trauma. And they get to me and I go, you know, sir, I, I just haven't had that. I, you know, I had kind of a silver spoon in my mouth my whole life. And but what I did have was I had a series of challenging academic situations. I mean, it sounds stupid, but it's true. And then I'd been on, you know, i you know, done a lot of outdoor stuff and I enjoyed it and I could understand what was going on. And in that understanding, I knew I could make it through. And, and the other, they, they tell you this in training. There are two things they tell you. One is they'll never do anything with you that they don't train you to do first. And the second is You're not expected to do things that you're not physically capable of doing. And if you could believe that, which I did, you could make it. And, you know, maybe I was too credible with the instructors. I don't know. But every time we did something, I was like, I can do this. And, you know, they wouldn't have us do this if it was going to kill us or whatever. That's how I would describe thinking my way through it. Oh, and then understanding not to, you know, take it as a big chunk, you know, a six-month chunk, but maybe a six-minute chunk at times.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's fascinating. I know that just applying that to, you know, even the business world of our startup, right? Like we've been running human for the last four plus years. And if you just think about how we've come since it was just like me and Michael, two of us together till now in a new office and a bunch of talented people around us launching, you know, really cool products that would have been unforeseeable. People
0: obsess over failure, but they never think about what they're going to do if they're successful. It's funny, like the worst day for a lot of people in the SEAL teams is the day they report to their first SEAL team. Because they've been so focused on getting through buds that they don't know what they're going to do after they get to the SEAL team. And, And I think I got a business, you know, people don't think enough about, hey, what am I going to do if I'm really successful in this? And that's why I think you have a lot of these companies that have problems after they hit it big, too. Huh. The the failure of leadership. I mean, people are hesitant to think about, hey, what am I going to do if I hit it out of the park? But I think you need to think about things like just like you need to think about what if I strike out too. Yeah,
1: that's fair enough. I think it's almost like the good problem to have. I think people have enough actual problems to think about where it's like, okay, if I'm actually in a position where we're really successful, I can figure it out. But I think what I hear from you is that don't take that too lightly, because if you're actually doing it right, there's a big chance you can might maybe actually
0: hit it out of the park. So you should be thoughtful about that case as well, and be ready too. Yeah. you know, organizationally, I mean, you know, you have to hire the right people to do that. You know, the same guy or the man or woman who got you to the point you're at might not be the next you know the person to get you to the yeah. next level. And you know, I, there's a whole bunch of business literature about this, but you know, people read it. I don't think they do it.
1: <laughs> Did you see that yourself in the SEAL teams? I mean, in some perspective you hit it out of the park as a naval officer you were one of the most senior seals period going from starting seal team seven to commanding warfare group one like all the all the west coast seal teams did you have this sort of vision of how you would be a commander and leader of seals as you were going
0: through this process like did you plan for your happy case I lucked out in two senses. The first is, my father was a CEO of, a, of an investment bank, and I grew up listening to, him. I mean, I've had like a 50-something year conversation about leadership with him, and that I mean, just gave me a lot to think about and a lot to fall back on. And then the other thing, I went to War College right after SEAL Team 7, and there was this fascinating course in War College called So You Want to Make a Difference. and. What the course was, basically, we were all, let's say, halfway through a potential career of 30 years. We were all at, uh, a little over halfway. We were all at 17, 18, 19 years. But these are like career officers. The career. All yes. of us are career officers, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and foreign officers. And this retired Australian four-star admiral who had been head of their the Australian Armed Forces, the chief of their joint staff, he taught this incredible course that I could best sum up by saying, if I had fallen asleep then, or anyone in the class had fallen asleep and woken up 10 or 15 years later as a four star in charge of the US military, how do you approach that? Because it's a different kind of leadership. It has different problems. It has, you know, it's just, it is not at all like what the officer who steps foot into buds and, you know, in my case, 1986 faces. And in the process of thinking through that, it's, as my father, I think, puts it really well, it's not the answers that matter. It's the asking of the questions. And so that uh, Admiral Barry, Chris Barry, he, he gave us good questions to ask. And so at each stage, I haven't known what to do, but I at least had a good idea of what the questions were. What are some of these questions? What's Can that? you share some of these good questions? So one of the questions is, you know, what motivates the people around you? And, you know, why are they there? And that changes, like, one of the biggest differences between, you know, being a SEAL Team 7, when I was a SEAL Team 7 CO, you know, I may not, you know, give orders to run the team on a day-to-day basis. That's the number two guy, the executive officer's job and the operations officer. But I had my hands on the controls. But then later when I go to group one and it's teams one, three, five, and seven are working for me, each of those commanding officers, that's his team. I can give a direct order, but he is going to execute it the way he sees fit. And that's a whole different kind of leadership. And understanding those guys and how they functioned and asking myself, you know, what is, you know, what does SEAL Team 3 need? Vice, what does the the commanding officer think it needs? That kind of question over and over again. And also just listening more than talking made for, you know, I think hopefully (laughs) I'm not the best judge of more effective leadership at the group level. And a lot of it was knowing enough to let people do what they wanted to do and see how it worked out and only interrupting them, you know, as as uh, sporadically as possible, or asking them the right question and getting them to think about it. And they may not do what I wanted, but in answering the question for themselves, you know, they kind of started down that path.
1: Yeah, that's sort of like the meta leadership. You're not giving the direct orders, but you're helping the functional leaders or the, t- the sub leaders. Make the best possible decision
0: along your strategy. Exactly, and that's the other thing is your strategy. I used to tell people, if you go to a rifle range, you know you don't shoot past a certain distance on the le- or a certain angle on the left and a certain angle on the right, and those are called um, the range limits or something. Anyway, you got to give them the arc that they're going to fire on, and you you have to stay inside that. But you but you let them wander around inside that arc, and a lot of people can't make that transition up you know, because they want to tell the person what specific place to shoot at. They don't want to let them kind of pick and choose on a generalized, you know, I don't know, a 30 degree arc or something.
1: Was that the biggest gap from, you know, folks
0: going into the senior ranks like you did versus the people that didn't quite make that? Cross that chasm. Well, some people, frankly and honestly, and for great reasons, aren't interested in higher leadership because either they're capable of it, but it just doesn't excite them, or they are—they know they're incapable of it, or you know a whole bunch of reasons. But you know, some people like it. I, I enjoyed it, and but you know, I reached my kind of level too, and you know, you kind of wake up one day and know, hey, you know, I've kind of arrived, and it's time to do something else. Yeah. So. What was that realization?
1: I imagine it wasn't just rolled over on one side of the bed one morning, you're like, I'm done, or, or was
0: it? Or is it a combination of factors? If you're in any organization long enough, you understand what the organization is seeking and its leaders yeah. and who they promote. And while I think I was perfectly capable of going further, there were what I, there were guys who by experience and talent were better suited than I was. Mm. And in terms of Command positions in terms of
1: deployment experience? Well, it
0: mostly deployment experience and also, you know, it all depends on what jobs you have. I'd really stayed in one job uh, probably a year longer than I should have. And I liked it. And I thought I was good at it. And we frankly, we needed someone to stay in it. Uh, that was at the National Security Council staff. Yeah. and But the National Security Council staff makes you great at policy. And frankly seal admirals are not you know they're not really paid for policy until a much higher level than I was at, so uh, you know there was that dimension of things and sounds like politics basically like the institutional politics a little bit where or- so there's institutional politics involved, but The guys making the decision, the the generals and admirals, I mean, they had good reasons for, you know, picking someone else over me. And, 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 you know, sometimes, frankly, it's just timing. You know, you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, I certainly had a little bit of that going. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the best way I can explain it is I think it was the USS Greenville uh, is a submarine. And they had three commanding officers in a space of like, I don't know, it's like six months. And three guys had various mishaps. And I think it was the middle guy said, he was only there for like a month. And he said he wouldn't trade that month for anything. You know, he was just honored to have had the opportunity. I'm honored to have have had the opportunity to, you know, have been an admiral for three years and serve as I did. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to cry over what could have been. You know, do I think about it? Yeah, I think about it. But at the end of the day, you know, things happen for a reason. And perhaps I'm way too big a fatalist, but I'm happy with how things turned out and, you know, if they had really needed me, I'm sure I would still be there.
1: Yeah. That
0: just reminds me of a recent
1: conversation I've had around stoicism, around acceptance of mortality in one sense, but I think what's more applicable is the acceptance of things you just cannot control, right? You just cannot control the timing of when you entered BUDS or what officer positions. And and you have to just play the cards you're dealt, right? Exactly. To move forward. You've served alongside some of the some of the most interesting people that are out on the podcast world today. I know that you worked with Jocko Willing, who has a great podcast. You've worked with David Goggins, who is you know the ultra marathoner SEAL with a great backstory. And a lot of the SEAL celebrities that you see that have like done amazing missions. I'm curious to hear your, your personal experience with those guys or any fun stories with some of the you know, the team members that, that people
0: might have heard about? Uh, I'll start with Jocko as the most colorful. Uh, so I, I've worked with Jocko. I, I'm almost positive it's three times now. And uh, so a couple of, like, things, I, you know, I've told you some of this stuff about Jocko. So the first is he really is, you know, who you see. That's not an act, you know. He, he is, you know, he gets up that early, he works out that hard, and he talks that way. <laughs> and But the second thing is in the 31 years I was in the Navy, I met one SEAL officer, SEAL period, who could write better than Jocko, you know, who was a better master of the English language than Jocko. I mean, Jocko, phenomenal writer, or at least in my you know experience he was. He is one of the best people I know of, of training, preparing people for, you know, arduous conditions and challenging situations. He is about as passionate as it's possible for a human to be. And he, you know, like he is colorful <laughs> and, you know, we have a, a, a saying in the teams that uh, or, you know, I've heard people say that uh, if that guy called me at 2 a.m., I'd You know, to rob a bank, I'd go rob the bank with him. (laughs) You know, I'd probably do that with Jocko. I don't think he would want me on his, uh, you know, bank (laughs) robbing crew. But, you know, if if the opportunity came up, I might, I might take him up on it. I, I, Goggins, I just know by reputation. One of the guys who worked for me was very close to him. And, you know, he's, it's like you say, it's an amazing story. And he is a, you know, a true master of uh, endurance, you know, athletic events. And he was a guy who was able to leverage, the experience of being a SEAL and his own personal, you know, we were talking about how you get through buds, his personal motivations to take him even further in mm-hmm. endurance world. And I'm trying to think of some of the other, you know, one of the kind of sad things I found in the SEAL teams, and I, I may be completely um, wrong on this, but when I came in the SEAL teams, it was full of characters. I mean, just, we used to do, uh, and the SEAL teams back in the day, used to do what's called circle PT. We didn't line up in ranks to do PT like the rest of the military. We we were in a big circle on the asphalt outside the SEAL team. And, you know, everyone from the lowest ranking guy to the highest ranking guy would be in that circle doing PT. And I'll never forget getting to SEAL Team 1, and there was this guy, a tremendous character, nicknamed Bison Head. And Bison Head, would st- he would never PT with everyone else. He would stand... He would walk around the circle and yell at everyone from the lowest ranking to the highest ranking. I heard him correct the commanding officer of the team. His nickname was the Hulk, I might add. And he was an AAU powerlifter and wrestler and, you know, a pretty famous SEAL Team One guy from Vietnam. And he would correct the Hulk on his pushups and stuff like that. And there who was, was
1: Bisonhead, like who's like
0: a master chief or something? Like he who was is this guy? He was a, uh, he was an E6 at the time. So he was well below. He wasn't even a chief at the time. Jeez. And he, no, he was just his personality. And everyone, he had a role to play in the okay. team. And that was his, like his, you know, bison head was, you know, that's who he was. And, and he's great. And I kind of miss all those guys. I'm sure they're still out there. But, you, you know, the world doesn't seem as tolerant of uh, characters anymore in some ways. And anyway, so there were, there, you know, the guys like that. You know, obviously they're the you know the guys everyone looks up to, the incredible heroes. And but you know they're all part of the team. And there was a um, the guy who I think is the you know I don't know what you call him the most competent operator ever is this guy Tom Norris who uh, received the Medal of Honor for uh, you know actions in the very late stages of Vietnam. And I'll never forget sitting in the SEAL Team Two classroom in like 1980. 98 or 99, and he was telling the story of the operations that he received the Medal of Honor for. And he would punctuate his story every so often by saying, You know, but anyone in this room, there are like 200 of us in the room, anyone in this room would do this. And I remember thinking to myself over and over again, You know, anyone in this room would have done what you did because we're all, you know, team guys almost none of us would have thought of doing it. I mean, his, he had a certain, like, I'll call it tactical genius. He just knew what to do in a way that, you know, most of us would do had we thought of it. Well, we would just never would have thought of it. And, you know, so I, I of all the guys, he's the guy, I think. It's you know, like a I'm maneuver rescue other guys or what was, what was this? Oh, he, he was the guy. So the, I, I'll get the story wrong, but the gist of the story is, Like they're at this, the guy, BAT-21, this Air Force, I think a lieutenant colonel or colonel with some really valuable information gets shot down over uh, or bails out real up close near the border between North and South Vietnam. And they kind of know where he is, but they need someone to go pick him up. And there's like a North Vietnamese invasion coming. And so the first night these guys leave this embattled fire base and uh, they're, I don't know, let's say there are eight of them. And it's really hairy. They come back, and the next night, you know, only five of them go out. And finally, on the either the third or fourth night, it's it's Tom Norris and a Vietnamese uh, SEAL go out. And they paddle upstream in a sandpan. They find the guy. They grab him. They hide him in the bottom of the boat, and they paddle back down. And everywhere they look, they're just north of the Vietnamese, you know, like tanks and soldiers and everything else and they just paddle calmly just back through this and they get the guy out and you know i'm sure i've done a complete injustice to the story but that it's just an amazing story and the thing that i find so incredible is well, you know one what he didn't do he didn't call in airstrikes because they would have known that he was there and that kind of thing he just kind of bluffed his way through but also that you know he knew what the odds were and that the odds were getting worse and yet he kept going out night after night and it's amazing yeah that's, I mean, uh,
1: these are, yeah, these are heroes, these are stories that like one hopes that they can make some sort of impact at that scale, even on just saving, you know, one particular person's life. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest missions that the SEAL teams see, right at the cost is rescues or, or rescue missions. One thing that in, in a recent conversation that we've had that I thought was interesting was this notion around public service, national service, where you have some like in, in a previous generation, uh, I, I I like to think that there's still that patriotism today in our current generation, but do you think that there's a gap between a patriotism or this notion of public service that existed in our culture and American culture 30, 40, 50 years ago versus
0: today? I, I, if you had asked me that question, maybe a year ago, I would have said yes. And, but I'm, What I am seeing now, and maybe it's just some weird dynamic in Silicon Valley, is there are a lot of people who want to serve in some way. Now, their notion of serve, how they're going to serve, I think is different. But, you know, I would say that this kind of libertarian bent in Silicon Valley combined with a real passion about technology and driven by a notion of being, you know, being of service to others is you know, having people create, you know, solutions to really hard problems. And then I think people are frustrated by doing it through, you know, like, well, certainly not my generation, but the generations before me, you know, they did it through military service or going into government or that kind of thing. And I think people are doing it now by trying to create solutions for government or maybe serving, you know, episodically in government. You know, I see more and more that I talk to more, I don't talk to a lot of people my age who are interested in serving the government. I talk to a ton of people from say 18 to 32, 33 years old who are they want to serve some way, shape, or form. And and so I think service is coming back, but it's a different concept of service. So I, I think that rings true to me in the sense that
1: even with typical employee employer relationships, it used to be you serve at a company for thirty years, got the gold watch, and perhaps the new model of like a gig economy where people are, you know, driving for Uber, driving to Lyft, being a contractor. Could you have that similar model in government where there's more of a fresh blood of a full cycle i mean i think we can get into a whole can of worms of what we would do to update government and governance but i think one aspect that i thought was interesting and perhaps is more obfuscated for a lot of our listeners is the national security council i mean uh one of the most important national defense uh bodies i, I guess to be led by the national security advisor today is John Bolton, advising the president on national security. What was it like being on the council? So you were on the council serving Obama, right? Mm -hmm. What's that experience like? What can you tell about that apparatus?
0: So I, I was technically on the staff. The National Security Council, just because I think few people appreciate it, is actually when the president and certain cabinet level officials meet. And the national security advisor, John Bolton, as you said, is in the room. And then they have levels below that where like the cabinet meets, but not with the president. Like the or, standing committee or the other yeah, yeah, standing levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's a level below that where it's the deputies of the various organizations. And deputy is a kind of a, a broad notion. It's not necessarily the number two guy. It might be the number three or number four person in a department or agency. And and so the first thing I would, and I, and I don't mean this by way of excuse, I, I mean this, you know, sincerely, is that if a problem gets to the National Security Council level, it, by its very nature, it, it doesn't have an easy solution. It has, you pick the least bad thing. And I, I was amazed at the number of times, I mostly went to deputies levels meetings, and I was amazed at the number of times I went in the meeting, and I thought oh, there's an easy solution. And then some goofy thing like would come up from some agency you never would have thought would have been impacted. And but their reason was super sound, and you had to take it into account. And you ended up with a less, on well, the face of it, less optimal solution. But everyone who was in that room knew that that was, you know, the best solution you were going to arrive at. And then the problem becomes executing the, the whatever decision is made. And that's, I actually, I think the decisions made were usually pretty sound, but execution, you know, when, as soon as you make contact with the real world, you know, the best laid plans go awry, uh, you know, as, as someone uh, whom I greatly respect says, you know, if you go in a football locker room, every play on the whiteboard goes for a touchdown. But, you know, in the real world, it's just, uh, in a football game, it doesn't happen. Why is it going to happen in the real world? So, you know, the, the National Security Council, you know, in these meetings, they come up with with good plans or good guidance to make the plans is a better way to describe it. But when they execute it, the real world tends to throw wrenches into the things. And it's, you know, the only, you know, politics aside, because obviously politics is going to, you know, color you or, or it's going to be the basis you make the decision on, but you know, people act like it's so easy to make these decisions. It's hard to make these decisions, and these people spend a lot of time. On, and I guarantee you the Trump administration is spending as much time trying to figure this stuff out as the uh, you know Obama or Bush before them or Clinton before that. And you know, the the um, model exists for a reason. It's I think Eisenhower uh, brought it in back in the fifties. So, so the apparatus is broad, and the talent is broad. It's
1: not just a few. People in a room like mastermind the world. No, no,
0: they can't. I mean, the, 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 the cabinet level people tend to be, I mean, and the deputies, they, they are smart and they're great decision makers and they have very competent staffs underneath them. But you're only as good as the information you have. And sometimes you're making decisions based on incomplete information. You can wait to make a better decision with better information, but the uh, value of the decision decreases or the opportunities lost, you know, may, um, you know, do bad things to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm just like to imagine the scale and the the layers of decision making to even get to that level. Any tips or lessons learned from that experience where like even in our very, very small dealings with the government? I mean, there's such a large entity with so many moving parts and structures and, and organizations. Any tips for uh, t- or experiences learned from that experience uh,
0: within that apparatus? To, well, I, I would start with a simplistic version, which is, you know, I'll go back to SEAL Team 7 yeah. in Iraq. So I had, I used to say that the intelligence officer, she wanted us to do the mission now because she wanted the intelligence gain from, you know, whatever we brought off target. Yeah. And the operations officer wanted to delay the mission because he wanted to know more so that it was safer for the guys. And so I always used to say, these are like two devils, one sitting on each shoulder, and I would have to figure, you know, split the difference. When do we have enough information to execute the operation at the risk level it was to gain whatever we were going to gain from an intelligence perspective? And sometimes we were just flat out told, shut up and, you know, do it. And, but most of the time, you know, I could pick the timing. So the first piece of it is, it's always a, you know, there's always at least two, conflicting things that you're trying to, you know, like there's a word, satisfice, you're trying to satisfy, And then when you ratchet that up multiple levels from, you know, the SEAL team level, a uh, SEAL team level up to the, you know, presidential level, you know, you get like 10 more of those things. And, but the things, you know, the stuff I saw, or at least that I appreciated and I'm not, you know, I'm not a decision-making expert, but, you know, one, the people in charge who listen to people argue and then, they make a decision, and then the first thing that should happen is whoever lost the argument should become the biggest supporter of whoever won the argument and that's kind of a follow up a lot of it is not the decision made it's the follow up you know do you hold the people's feet to the fire to get the decision done? Do you make sure that the person who lost the argument doesn't you know submarine the person who won and you know it's a lot of times you know when when a decision's made in a forum like that. You know, people leave the room and that's the start of the argument, not the end of it. And it should be the end of the argument. And that's where, you know, a good chief of staff comes in or, you know, just people, like I said, hold, hold their feet to the fire. And so the ability to listen and the ability to follow through are the keys. I, I, you know, I watched uh, General Petraeus in Iraq. And I, I remember one of the first mornings he came in and was running things, he You know, people would brief on something and General Petraeus would say something like, "Uh, okay, Bill, I want you to follow up on that and I want you to go back and tell that reporter that that fact was wrong or I want you to follow up with that commander and tell him I want him doing this, not that. And then at the end of the thing, there were like 30 like follow-up items, if you will. And I, I thought it was all just Petraeus saying, hey, do this. And it turned out, I, I, I saw, I got on the phone back to my two-star I was working for. I told him the story and he goes, oh no, Petraeus will follow up on every single one of those things. And that and Petraeus is one of his many, many abilities was his he could just track all that stuff in his head and follow, and, and he would hold people's feet to the fire. And that's why, you know, in so many instances, he was a very effective commander and you know he had other you know not so great things but that was one thing he was just phenomenal at yeah
1: i think one of the things that stuck out to me was rally after making the decision and i think that and, and if you have this infighting where people feel like their hurtings or their feelings were hurt when like oh someone else's decision was made i'm going to like torpedo this operation or the, or this, this this decision now that seems so that's just destructive to the to the to the overall goal and i think that's something that I think all organizations can really define as part of their culture. Okay. Like we're going to have a very argue, argue it out, put it on the ground, be aggressive in the argument. But once a decision is made, rally behind the decisions, execute Yeah. Now, I, I mean, I,
0: I guess people would accuse me of being manipulative or whatever. But, you know, there's this, an expression in the SEAL teams, you know, throw, throw the boys a bone. Yeah. And sometimes you have to, sometimes, you know, if enough decisions have gone the wrong way, it's not necessarily, you know, a lot of times they're not right and wrong decisions. They're just, you know, different decisions. And sometimes you decide in favor of the person who's lost all the decisions to throw them a bone and keep their morale up and and show them that sometimes it's going to go their way. And, you know, you don't do that, obviously, with matters of principle or morality or anything like that. But if it doesn't matter and, you know, you got to keep everyone's morale up and that's how I've always viewed things. And, you know, yeah, I guess it's manipulative, but it also, it keeps the organization together and it keeps the team <laughs> together. I don't know if it's manipulative
1: other than just it's in t- intuition. I think it's just this, I think we've talked about this. It's just in any in any organization dealing with people and you have to work with a group of people and keeping that group as a whole moving forward. And if it's like showing a bone or manipulating, it's just like, no, it's not good for the whole group to have, these decisions in this way. And I think a lot of it's going to come down to intuition. Like what's the feeling between how this person is operating if they have another decision denied or another decision go against their way. Yeah. So perhaps like yeah. that's the most important thing. You have a pattern matching database of 31 plus years plus now your, your business
0: career into, into how you think about decisions going forward. Yeah. And, and and knowing your people is, you know, the other piece of that. I think, you know, that's part of the intuition factor. And, you know, just being available so people can come in and talk to you. A lot of times, I remember many times the solving really hard personnel problems because those are the worst problems easily. You know, someone thinks they were, you know, screwed over basically. And half the time it was just about listening to their story. Yeah. And if they felt they were heard and the decision was the same, they were happy. Yeah. Obviously, you know, one of the biggest things – and in our
1: audience here is around human performance. And I'll have to say that SEALs, obviously everyone looks up to as uh, pinnacles of of human specimens. I was recently talking to uh, the current SEAL Team 7 CEO and he was saying that we're not necessarily like Ferraris, we're like fine tuned engines. We're like dump trucks that can like handle (laughs) a ton of load and just keep plugging away. Here's to hear your thoughts about that and how human performance and the optimizations
0: of the mission goes into, into play in naval special warfare. So one of the things I always used to argue with the guys about was, you know, everyone's always like, SEAL teams need to be more entrepreneurial. And I was like, are you kidding? You know, if the military were entrepreneurial, we would fail our mission nine out of 10 times or whatever, you know, the current rate of startup failure is. And so I, I kind of agree with the SEAL Team 7 guy, the dump truck. I mean, we are just we have to be reliable i i might uh, the example the whatever the metaphor i would use would be different though i was talking to an israeli seal once and they did not carry at the time the m4 the u.s weapon uh, rifle they carried a lot of times for especially swimming through the surf and and all the sand i mean they carried ak-47s the Russian weapon, and they—they they told a story. He told me two interesting things. One, they had dropped an AK-47 off the pier one day by accident, and they found it like six months later, and it still worked after being under in, in right. salt water for six months. Which I, I don't know if I believe that, but it's a good story.
1: But, I could believe it. I mean, there's so many AKs in
0: Afghanistan being trucked through desert. They're built. They're overbuilt, yeah. certainly. Yeah. But the other thing he told me was. He, I guess, his father. They had emigrated from the Soviet Union to Israel. His his family, and they said that like a Soviet vacuum cleaner or whatever. When you bought it, it didn't work. But if you could get it to work, it would work forever. It was just so overbuilt and robust. And I think you know, uh, you know, the stuff. It isn't elegant, but it worked. And I and that's kind of how I think of the SEAL team. So you know, we're not always we will do things elegantly, but the. What we use to do it elegantly isn't always elegant. And, you know, we tend to, uh, you know, be like dump truckish, I guess. And, uh, you, we, Buds gets us to work. And once we're working, we work for a long time, but we're definitely not a Ferrari. I mean, we, uh, you know, Ferrari's great on a a nice flat road, but as soon as you get even remotely bumps or stuff like that, you know, it's so low- Maintenance. Yeah, maintenance. But it looks wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you have to be careful and distinguish between effectiveness and looking wonderful. Anyway, that would be my thought on that. Yeah.
1: I mean, to me, that's a lot of it's like recovery, preservation of the forest type notions beyond just, hey, let's make what are already elite athletes even more elite. I mean, I think that's always some part of the discussion, but it seems like the bigger question is, okay, how do we get these guys to last longer? How do we keep them healthy?
0: Yeah. But, you know, the, what, when you said elite athletes, what sprung to mind was, I think the only group of people or type of group of people on the planet, like watching them play basketball, that's worse than a uh, a, a group of SEALs is, is a group of wrestlers. And many of SEALs used to be wrestlers. And so, uh, you know, SEALs are kind of, they tend to be good athletes, but not great athletes. And I mean, the SEAL, the number one trait is just endurance I mean enduring you know as opposed I mean, they just make it through stuff and and you know back to the dump truck theory you know they can you have some guys who are elite you know truly elite athletes but they, generally speaking the guys are just dump trucks or you know just can keep going and going and going and going and going and they'll get there eventually so I mean that's kind of
1: war right it's just like you know yeah. duking it out day in day out I'm curious to about the psychological impact I mean uh, obviously I'm sure it's a you could go quite far uh, into that topic, but obviously people come back, you know, sometimes change from, from combat, I you mean, know, what's your experience there? Is there, you know, in, in addition to the physical and resiliency and endurance, can we speak towards like the mental side, the mental endurance and mental resiliency?
0: First of all, as far as like heavy combat, I'm not the guy to talk to. I was, you know, already—I i was in my mid 40s by the time 9/11 hit, and and a, you know at a rank and job that didn't you know exactly lend itself to going out on ops every night. But I, I think the train—the number one stress inoculate or inoculation against the stress—is the training itself. You know, the fact that you made it through and that you learned to deal with stress in training and in learning how to do your job. You know, there's a lot of, like, mindfulness training out there now. And and the teams have, you know, thrown a lot of stuff against the wall to see what works in terms of helping guys with stress. A lot of guys are just predisposed to dealing with stress in a positive way. You know, instead of post-traumatic stress, they have post-traumatic growth. And I think that template for that is laid down, actually, in BUDS. And and then you keep going through training. and, and You know, the more training you go through, I think the more ready you are. And then there's just, then there's the brotherhood, if you'll, you know, call it, you can talk to guys. And I think guys, since, you know, 9 11, as the war goes on, uh, people are learning about the importance of actually opening up to their, you know, their comrades and uh, their fellow SEALs. And I, and I think having that group out there to talk to helps. I think you know talking is a big thing. We have, you know, various mechanisms like, you know, check up from the neck up and stuff like that where guys have to talk to the psychologists before they go home or we we have procedures to try to decompress guys from a combat zone back to home. We've done a lot of work or they, I guess no longer we um, on the family side of the equation because families can be stressors too. I mean, not intentionally, but, you know, their expectations a family has, their expectations your teammates have, and trying to make those two meters, it doesn't happen. You can have balance with it sequentially, but not simultaneously. And, um, or, you know, maybe there's 1% can do that. I don't, I don't think very many guys can do that. And so we work with the families about what their expectations can be. Before the guys deploy, they talk to the families. After they come home, they talk to the families. And, they brief the families on what to expect when the guys go home before they, they talk about communication strategies, you know, uh, financial. And then there are, uh, I don't know how many charitable foundations there are. There, there are these charities that's, that help the families as well and the SEALs afterwards. And there is no one answer. And there's a whole bunch of potential solutions. And guys are working with everything from retreats in Montana, you know, it's a great program, to you know things where they give the wives a break um you know when the husbands are overseas they take the wives to a spa kind of thing for a day with childcare just things like that to give people cuz a lot of times it's just people need a break yeah. and that's you know the key but there is no solution there's only many 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 solutions
1: no, i think that's well said i think as citizens see the the headlines you see that like the specific operation but there's such a you know the family life uh, the kids, the wife, the husband. I, I guess there's no husbands. There's no female
0: seals. But well, there are, there are women who so, uh, who you know they're going into combat with seals or near combat situations. Okay, so, so like that's that's the. Know, there, are male, yeah. there are you know husbands yeah. you know now in the mix. Yeah, so it's like uh, the impact and
1: the the service is broad. I mean, it's like basically the iceberg sort of analogy, right? You don't see like the vast 90 you know percent of really what's going on. No, no absolutely true. Yeah. So what what's next for you? So in, in the business world, I know you got your Series 63, you're officially sanctioned, qualified in the finance world.
0: What are you looking forward to? The number one thing, and I think it's a longer term thing, is when I went to work, you know, in my last few jobs as an admiral, I I was ready every day, you know, I I kind of had enough experience in the military that I could take whatever problem came my way and, you know, craft a solution. The business world, I still don't have that, you know, those reps and, uh, you know, I have to learn a lot of new stuff so that I can take the intuition I've built up over years in the military and adapt it to the business world. And and some of the stuff is remarkably similar, some of the stuff is radically different and And a lot of expectations I've had, I've had to, you know, basically throw them aside because they weren't correct about the business world. But, you know, I'm the one as I go through this, the one thing I'm finding that's really helpful is being here in this area because, you know, there's a certain intensity and obsession. I, I like the tech. I like the startup world. And so it keeps me intellectually curious and it keeps me learning. Oh, and that's, you know, oddly enough, one of the things the military is really good at is uh, making you a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm basically in full learning mode now and, and I'm trying to figure out, I have a, a best way I can describe is I have a bunch of puzzle pieces on the table right now. And I, I think I've got the edges done and I have one or two, like, uh, build-ups in the corner, but I still don't know what's in the center of that business puzzle. And, you know, I'm working towards it, but it's not a, a picture. And so I don't know what it is yet. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm going to be looking at.
1: No, but I think it's super refreshing. I think just, you know, seeing new progress and, and evolve. I think it's cool. I think very few people can have a storied, illustrious career, 31 plus years, and then basically you know, start a brand new career. So I think that resiliency just really shows. And I think that curiosity really shows as you're almost attacking this new challenge as probably with a, a similar fervor as you tackled your initial challenge. I wish I had that energy. <laughs> no, but, but I think it still carries through. I mean, obviously there's a little bit more years, a little bit more experience, yeah. but hopefully the experience and
0: wisdom accelerates that. Yeah, no, the the whole wisdom, you know, as we've talked about, the whole notion of wisdom I'm fascinated by. And it's not, it's really not well defined. And it has some sort of weird combination of emotional control, experience, knowledge, judgment. And, you know, how do I, you know, I think I had some level of wisdom in the military. And how do I turn that into business wisdom? Can I turn it into business wisdom? And, uh, you know, I hope the case, I hope the answer is yes, obviously. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm really glad to introduce you, Alex, to our community here. I mean, I think just knowing you personally for the last year, a couple of years, you've been probably one of the top, I don't know, one, two, three people I've met over the last couple of years. And I know that our audience is probably have a lot of questions for you around your, 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 your experience, but also your stories and, and leadership skills. So really happy to introduce Alex to the audience. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the community discussion. Well, i look Appreciate forward the to it. Thanks so much. Thank you. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast at for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna subs to cover. So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols, our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to, you know, what's going on at human, you know, what products are we working on, what R&D are we working on, what customers, what are the feedback from the Keto ester, happy to address any and all questions. So shoot us an email at podcast at And we'll once we have a big bank of questions, we'll do a special episode. As always, please subscribe for future episodes of the human enhancement podcast. Give us a five star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcast at And we'll send you a free sprint mini, our acute focusing tropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.